This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. If your roof starts to leak or your floor's really squeak, you live in a money pit. Money pit. If your basement needs a pump or your place looks like a dump, you live in a money pit. Money pit. Pick up the telephone, fix up your home sweet home. I call it Coast to coast and floorboards to shingles, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. And we are here to help you take on the projects you want to get done around your house. And Leslie, I think this is the official last show for us of 2023. So we want to send a special thank you out to all in our audience who take time to listen to the show and ask us questions. And we hope that we've been helpful and valuable to you as a resource for this entire year. And we look forward to doing it once again next week. Coming up on today's show, heat from a wood-burning stove makes winter easier to bear, so make sure yours burns the whole season long. We've got tips for buying the best, the cheapest, and the safest firewood coming up. And you're probably inside more often than not this time of year, so how healthy is the air that you're breathing? Maybe not as healthy as you think. We're going to tell you how to cut down on dust, allergens, and even germs with a whole house air cleaner a little later. And have you ever felt a chilly draft whoosh across on a cold day? It may be coming up from the floor below. We're going to share exactly why that happens and the easiest way to fix it in today's weatherization tip just ahead. All right, but first, guys, we want to know what you are working on so we can lend a hand. We know it's a busy weekend. you got a lot of festivities, a lot of celebrating, a lot of family and friends. So just go ahead, jot down a list, and when we get into the new year, let's get rocking. The number here is one eight 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 Money Pit, or you can post your questions by going to moneypit.com slash ask. Let's get to it. Leslie, who's first? Sue in Ohio needs some help cleaning a carpet. Tell us what's going on. I have a concrete sunk porch slab that has had been covered with black carpeting, and it's, uh, we had a very muggy summer this year, and green mold started to grow on it. And the, I tried, you know, washing it off and rinsing it off, and, and it just it just won't take care of it. And I know that you had helped other people with mold problems with uh, 10% bleach, but I wouldn't dare put bleach on that black carpet. I wondered if there's something else that will kill that mold. Well, how do we know it's mold? It sounds like algae. Could it be? It could be, yeah. What what I would do is I would simply, if the carpet's that dirty, I would simply go out and rent a steam cleaner, rent a carpet cleaner. Those carpet cleaners are pretty darn effective. I rented one myself at the Home Depot just a few weeks ago for a couple of rooms in an apartment that uh, that we own that was getting a new tenant. And I'm always astounded with what a phenomenal job those steam cleaners do on what looks like carpet that has to be torn out. But when you steam clean it, with the right materials, use the chemicals that come with the machine. It does a really good job. You just got to take your time. You usually have to go over it a couple of times, and it takes a little bit of work, but but it really does a great job. So I wouldn't try to do this any other way. The way the steam cleaners work is water is injected uh, into the carpet, and then almost at the same time, a very strong vacuum pulls that water back out with the dirt and debris attached to it. Oh, so the steam kills the algae. 
Yes, it'll clean it. And then if you dry it really well after that, it should stop it from coming back. Okay. Okay. Well, that'll help me. All right. And it won't damage the color. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Good luck. Thanks so much for calling us. All right, now we've got Kurt in North Carolina on the line who's working on a restoration. Tell us about the project. I've got a two-by-six floor joist spanning 15 feet, and I'd like to know if I rip some three-quarter-inch plywood and sister it up against the two-by-sixes and glue and screw it, if that would be sufficient. My crawl space has six vents under the floor, and I want to seal them up. I read it doesn't need uh, cross-ventilation. It's kind of old school, and I'd put six mil poly on the ground. Your thoughts, please. All right. Well, first of all, in terms of uh, beefing up the floor joists, sistering the floor joists by doubling them, I don't necessarily think I would use plywood on them. I would double them. Would it be flimsy? Well, I mean, it may not be flimsy, but the thing is, if you want to sister a floor joist and help support it, you need to go from bearing point to bearing point. So if it's going from a girder to an exterior wall, the sister beam has to go the same length. You know, another thing that you could do, Kurt, is you could run another girder at the midpoint of that 15 feet from end to end. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be has to be as strong as the main girder for the house because you're really just taking the flex out of it. So if you poured a small footing underneath it, you know, and just got something in there to kind of stiffen the floor, that would take the bounce out. Right. Yeah, I thought about that on the uh, main floor, but my second story, I didn't want to you know, like put a glue lamp in. I only have like seven feet, five inches to ceiling height. I understand. So, you know, doubling them is a solution as well as using a mid-span girder. All right, sir. I appreciate the information. You're welcome, Kurt. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Pit. Hey there. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. If you are, you know what would totally make our day is if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Absolutely. Just go to moneypit.com slash review and let the world know how much you enjoy our home improvement tips and tricks. And you might even win a copy of our book. Heading over to Texas, we've got Deborah on the line who's got a badly cracked floor. Let's see what's going on. My home was built two years ago in South Central Texas in the San Antonio area. About six months ago, all of the ceramic tile cracked in like a spider web fashion. I'm waiting for engineers report through the warranty company to see if they're going to do anything about it. I believe they're going to come back and tell me it's settling, but I have a hard time believing that a house would be settling as such in two years. I'm just not sure what's going to happen, but I thought I would ask a professional. Hey, Deborah. So here's what I'm thinking. Uh, I don't, I'm not ready to chalk this up to settlement at all. If you've got a badly cracked tile floor, the best possible cause here is because they didn't put an isolation membrane between what I'm presuming is a slab and the tile, which means as you get expansion and contraction, they move separately. And if the isolation membrane is not there, they're going to crack. If you, in fact, have a problem with the slab itself, it is definitely not a settlement issue. Something is dreadfully wrong. And I appreciate that the home warranty company that you got from your builder is sending an engineer out. But I think you need to have your own engineer look at this, somebody who's independent from that uh, home warranty company to give an opinion as to why this happened. Because it could be potentially safe. Um, it could impact your safety. It certainly could impact the value of your home. So I would definitely recommend you hire your own structural engineer and have that evaluated yourself. Good luck with that project. And I hope this is helpful. Did you know that Americans take 20,000 breaths a day and spend an average of 90% of their time indoors? 
That's right. And according to the EPA, the level of indoor air pollutants can be two to five times higher than outdoor air and occasionally more than a hundred times higher. Plus, every spring we get sucked with allergens too. Well, Air Doctor is an air purifier that filters out dangerous contaminants like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold. Their Ultra HEPA filter has been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested allergens, including bacteria and viruses. That's impressive. Now, Air Doctor also comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus the shipping. And they're offering a special discount to Money Pit listeners. Just head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code MONEYPIT, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you'll also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock this special offer in right now by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-Pro.com and use promo code MONEYPIT. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code MONEYPIT. All right, Tim's trying to get some stains off of his roof. Let's see what's going on. How do you remove hard water stains from painted metal roof? Hey, Tim, so if you've got roof stains, and I'm not convinced what you're seeing is hard water, but regardless, whatever kind of stains those are, a good product to use to clean those is called Jomax, J-O-M-A-X. It's made by the Zinzer Company. You mix it up, you add bleach to it, you put it in a pump sprayer, you spray it on the roof, let it sit a bit, don't let it dry there, and then you rinse it off. It's pretty effective stuff, so I would give Jomax a shot. Well, a warm stove is definitely a hallmark of the season, but you need to be careful when selecting which kind of wood to burn. If you choose the wrong fuel, that can be dangerous, and it can also cause damage to your wood-burning stove. All right, first of all, guys, never burn trash, driftwood, or even treated woods. Always use seasoned wood for the best heat release and minimal creosote buildup, and that's going to help prevent the chances of having a chimney fire. So when we talk about seasoned wood, what exactly is that? Well, fresh-cut wood contains about 45% water, whereas seasoned wood, which is wood that's kind of set out for a while, is only around 20 to 25%. Now, if you cut your own wood, you've got to make sure it's chopped six months to a year before you plan on using it. Time, sun, wind, all of that is going to remove the excess moisture for free. Splitting it helps, too. You get more surface area, which means more evaporation. Now, when you're buying wood for your stove, look for logs with darkened ends, cracks, and splits. This means that wood is fairly dry. It should also be lightweight, making it an obvious clunking sort of sound when it hits another piece. If you buy wood that's well dried out, it's going to burn much, much better than wood that is too fresh. You know, when you hear those snapping sounds, you hear a lot of that when wood's burning. It's got a lot of water in it, and that's what you want to avoid. Dry wood is the best wood when it comes to a wood stove. Now we've got Cynthia from South Dakota on the line who's got a question about a firewall. Tell us what you're working on. I have an old house, and I've been ripping out the plaster walls, and I found along this one wall through the whole entire house is this pretty durable and tough plaster board stuff. And I was wondering if that is a firewall because that seems to be where all the cold air returns and stuff are, and if I should or should not rip it out. And if I do rip it out... Is there a certain kind of drywall that I should use there? Where is this wall located exactly? It could have been on the outside of the house at one point, but it's like right under the furnace. Well, first of all, the only place that you typically would have a firewall, in other words, a fire-rated wall with a certain rating, is between the garage and the house. All the other walls and ceilings inside the homes are, are usually have traditional half-inch drywall. 
if it's uh, an exterior, an interior exterior wall, an inside surface of an exterior wall, like a garage wall, then you would use a five eighths inch thick fire rated drywall. But all of the other places in the house, you'd have a regular regular plasterboard. I'm sorry, sorry regular uh, drywall. Okay. Have you ever seen this plasterboard before? Well, sure. Now, how old is the house? I believe it was built in 1896. See, there's there's different stages of wall construction. In 1896, you would have had something called wood lath. So there would be wood strips on the wall and then plaster put on top of that. Yep, that's on most of the walls. And But this one particular wall, which could have been an outside wall at one point, I'm not sure exactly, it seems it's like in two-foot two strips. Yeah, okay, so that's a later that's a later addition. And, and what they did with that is... When they stopped using wood lath, they started using uh, rock lath or, or uh, like a, you would think of sheetrock in those two-foot-wide strips. They put that on and then cover that with wet plaster. So that's just a, a more modern version of the way walls were construction. So it went from, from wood lath to rock lath to sheetrock. That's essentially the, the, the progression of wall construction over roughly the last hundred years. Okay. Well, thank you. A little lesson on building history. hope that clears it up for you, Cynthia. <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you. All right, good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. All right, now we've got Lewis from Michigan on the line with a roofing question. What can we do for you? The house was built in 1929. The siding, it's a siding question. The siding is asbestos concrete shingles. We have iron in our well water. When spraying the flower, the water is accumulated over the years on the shingles. Now, one wall of the house now has a golden glow. <laughs> Any recommendations for removing the iron golden glow? Well, if it's siding, you're going to have to clean it and paint it. That's the only thing you can really do. I mean, you could wash this house down. You can use a TSP, trisodium phosphate. That will tend to take out some of that. But you're going to end up having to paint this siding. That's The nice thing about asbestos is it lasts forever. The, the, the not-so-nice thing about it is it has to be painted forever. But it's a non-organic product, so it, it, it will not rot. It will not fall apart organically. But it doesn't look very nice, and it does absorb a stain and needs to be constantly maintained. Now, because the asbestos is held inside of a cement binder, it's not a safety risk. It's just really a maintenance headache. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good luck with that project. All right, now we're heading over to John in Iowa, who's dealing with a leaky shower. Tell us what's going on. Well, I've got a shower on my main floor where it basically leaks onto the floor in the basement. And when I removed the two-inch trap, this is a home that was built in 41, but it's been remodeled recently, probably within the last 10 years, or at least the shower has, I, I noticed there wasn't a whole lot of room between the tile and the, and the flooring, or the, the main wood behind it, as well as they sealed up the drain. It was basically just a two-inch PVC sealed with some sort of cement, and then a drain popped on top of it. And I'm curious, I mean, how can I remedy this issue? I mean, obviously it needs a proper drain, but I couldn't find anything to fit the hole that they had. All right, well, first of all, it's still leaking, and, and you're in the middle of this project. Is that correct, John? Well, I, I basically, I just bought this home, and I basically said, okay, we're not using this shower. We have, a, we have an upstairs shower that we can use during, you know, during the remediation process. Is this a tile shower? Yes. So with a 1940 tile shower, the first thing I would expect to leak is the lead pan. And the way those showers are built is there's a lead pan put in uh, against the drain, then the tile is put on top of the lead. And so over the years, those pans would crack. And the way you test a lead pan 
is simply by blocking the shower drain and then filling up the bottom of the shower with as much water as you can get in there, usually you know four or five inches of water, and then wait and see what happens. So if it's possible for you to test the pan, I would do that before I started before I start assuming that the leak was at the drain, because it might very well be that the drain is not leaking, the pan is leaking, and if that's the case, then you have to tear out the shower base and rebuild it. Ah, I see. <laughs> All right. It's the lead pan because, you know, a pan that's 60, 70 years old, they just don't last that long. All right. Okay. So seal it off, test it off. You know, you know what works well? One of those, um, you know, those, those um, rubber jar openers that are yeah. about six inches in diameter. Put that across the drain, fill it up with water, and then watch for a leak. All right. I'll try that. Okay, John. Good luck. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 888- Money pit. You know, Leslie, in the 20 years I spent as a home inspector, I used to check those pans for leaks all the time that way. And we got, you get smart after the first time this happens to you is that you never let that water sit very long. Like you fill it up, you go downstairs immediately and see if it's leaking. Really? It's that fast when you've got a crack in the pan? Sometimes, yes. Because if it's going to leak, if it's a bad crack, you it may never have been discovered, or it might have been so slow, but by filling the whole pan up with water, you prove it very quickly that it's leaking. So that's why we always check very quickly to see if there's a leak. And then if not, you know, fill it up, let it sit there for a half hour and go back and check again. But uh, it's a very, very common area for a leak, and unfortunately a very expensive one because, think about it, you've got to tear out all that tile and you've got to rebuild that pan. And today, of course, we don't use lead. We usually use fiberglass. But it's a pretty big renovation, probably a couple thousand bucks worth of work. Everyone should know that drinking water is important to staying hydrated and healthy. Having safe, clean water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants right in its tap water. That's why we are thrilled to be working with AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. It removes 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and is specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAs in your water supply. And they have water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. They even have a Wi-Fi-connected purifier and mineral boost options. And its proprietary purification technology is independently tested by IATMO to NSF and ANSI standards to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAs known as forever chemicals, nitrate, and many more. I can truly taste the difference when I compare it with my old water filter. AquaTrue saves you money also. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That's less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you'll save the environment from tons of plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and even makes a great gift. And today, Money Pit listeners can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to aquatrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code MONEYPIT at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier when you go to aquatrue.com and use promo code M-O-N-E-Y-P-I-T. Money Pit. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com.
Rhonda in Alaska, you've got the money pit. How can we help you today? Hi there. Um, yeah, a couple of years ago, we had a, um, a moisture problem in our crawl space. Um, I, I live in a, a townhouse-style condo, and as a result, the adjoining wall down in the crawl space, um, it has drywall on it, and it's got some mold and I'm not sure how to get rid of that. Okay, so th- we're talking about crawl space areas in a condominium form of ownership? Yes. Typically, that's um, you have to check your public offering statement, but generally that part of the structure is owned by the association, and therefore the association bears the responsibility of maintaining it. In most multifamily forms of ownership, in a townhouse, condominium kind of ownership, generally what you own is inside sheetrock to inside sheetrock. Okay. And this is important to know because, for example, when you insure your home, you know the insurance that you purchase has to cover things like, you know, paint and kitchen cabinets and flooring, you know, carpet, stuff like that. Okay. But it doesn't cover the wall or the floor structure because that's covered by the association. So if you've got a mold problem in the common area, that's called the common area, in other words, the area that's common to the entire association, they are responsible for addressing it. Really? And that's why you pay, you know, monthly maintenance fees. Yeah. So make sure you, you know who owns what before you start messing with this. Okay. And especially in a multifamily situation, if you've got mold that's festering in a crawl space, that can, you know, get up into the units and really affect um, a lot of folks. So I would um, first address this with the association. I would address it in writing. Okay. Include pictures so you're documenting it. Um, and then ask them to have... A professional take a look at it. Okay. And and by the way, by professional, I mean industrial um, hygienist. Yeah. I mean somebody who's an expert in mold, not, you know, the the local handyman that's going to come <laughs> down there and try to scrub it away, and and in the process distribute it to the entire unit. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate your help. So Leslie, I was installing a new thermostat, and I had to run a wire from the wall to the thermostat, and of course the wall cavity I had to run it through had some sort of a blockage in it, which, of course, you know, is not normally there, but it was just my dumb luck that I found it. So I very nicely and neatly figured out where it was, and I cut a square piece of the drywall out around it so that I could drill a hole through it and run my wire through it. Well, as I pulled that piece of uh, drywall out, I noticed that it had been smashed in once before, and all kinds of spackle and whatever was like stuck out from the back of it. Well, the last heating guy did exactly that. He took his hammer, he smashed a hole in the wall, shoved the wire through, and spackled it. I should have done that <laughs> if I already known that it existed once before. Right. Sometimes, you know, those shortcuts are out there. <laughs> I always try to do things the right way, and that does not include just taking my hammer and smashing a hole in the wall. But maybe it should sometimes. All right. Next up, we've got Jim in Oregon with a paneling question. Tell us what you're working on. I've got a house that was built in uh, the early 1950s, and I moved into it in the 70s. And it didn't have any insulation in the in the walls of the house, so I took the interior paneling off, which was quarter inch plywood was all it was, and then I put insulation behind that. And of course, rewired at the same time, and then when I put the quarter inch paneling back after I put the insulation in, then I put uh, of course it's in the seventies a big paneling error, so I just put paneling over the top of that. Now I want to kind of upgrade it a little bit, and I'm not too sure if, if my best route would be to, to clean the paneling really well and paint it or clean the paneling really well and have somebody come in and spray it uh, like you do uh, sheetrock, or maybe I should put quarter-inch sheetrock over the top of it and tape it off and then spray it, uh, or a possibility of putting uh, on every stud, put a tube of two on the stud 
and then put the insulation in that looks like styrofoam with the uh, tinfoil on each side, and then panel over our sheetrock over the top of that. So I'm kind of looking at dollars and cents and which way to go. Wow, you have a lot of choices. I mean, do we want? We really want a cosmetic solution here. Yes, that's the case. There's no reason you can't paint this. I mean, painted paneling can look quite attractive if it's done well, right, Leslie? But I think priming is probably important. Yeah, I mean, you're right about wanting to clean it. Then you're definitely needing to prime it with a very good quality primer because you want it to adhere very well to the paneling. And you know, depending on if this is actual wood paneling or some sort of you know wood-like paneling, you just want it to stick well. And then I would go with whatever paint over it. You know. The issue here is whether or not you like the look of the vertical lines. If you like them, then you're going to love it painted because somehow white paneling looks fantastic, especially if you've got a decor and a home style that lends itself to that look. It can really work for you. Um, I really wouldn't paint it any other color because then it's like, oh, that's painted paddling, where suddenly in a white, it's like, oh, it's got like a country chicish charm to it. Um but, you know, it, it's really up to you whether that's a look that you like and will enjoy. If you can work with it, then I definitely say go for the paint. So if I, I paint it white on it, my big horn sheep hanging on the wall and the antelope and stuff would stand out really well. Then. <laughs> yeah, but they would. <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation for another day. <laughs> Yeah, I can just understand that. I used to own a sporting goods store, so I understand that. All right, good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us, Jim, at one eight 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 Money Pit. Well, the EPA has named indoor air pollution as one of the top five environmental risks to public health and tells us that indoor air can be up to 100 times more polluted than the air outside. But if you're thinking that they can't be talking about my house, well, they can, especially if you don't have the right kind of air filter. Now, to start, there are really four types of air filters to understand. The first are flat filters. Now, these are the basic filters that are made from fiberglass. They typically need changing on a monthly basis. And while they capture dust, they really don't capture the kind of contaminants that can make you miserable, like allergens. Next, we have a class called extended media filters. Now, these use a particle filter and a small electrostatic charge to clean the air, and they do a much better job than just a plain flat filter. All right, then there's electronic filters. Now, these units use a high electrical charge to capture particles like a magnet, and they're extremely effective on small particles and perform about 30 times better than flat filters. Finally, we're going to talk about ultraviolet filters. Now, UV filters are extremely effective at capturing particles, bacteria, and viruses, and these are the kind of filters that hospitals use. I mean, especially when you've got diseases present, these filters, the UV ones, do a great job. Now, for some of these filters, when it comes to installation, it's a job for a pro because they need to be built into the existing system. This way, air is continually clean as it passes through the filter. Now, prices are going to vary depending on the type of filter that you go with and its size, but it's definitely well worth the investment, especially if anyone in your home suffers from allergies. Yeah, and don't forget, you'll also be doing a lot less dusting around the house as well. Renee in North Carolina needs some help weatherproofing. What can we do for you? I just recently moved into a brand new apartment complex. So, you know, the, the windows are, you know, pretty, pretty good windows. But what I found is that it is freezing in here now that the temperatures drop. So I'm looking for suggestions on how to put up temporary, um, fixes to, um, the windows leaking the air in and also the sliding door. 
Um, I have a big sliding glass door that I'm not sure how to weatherproof that. All right, Renee, first of all, um, as far as the windows are concerned, one of the things you might want to look into is weather stripping caulk. There's a certain type of caulk that's designed to be removable. And one of the products is called Seal and Peel, the letter N, Seal and Peel. I think that one is by Red Devil or DAP. Both both manufacturers have a version of this. And the way it works is you essentially can caulk the windows shut. So you can caulk around all those gaps. And then in the spring, you can grab the, the caulk bead and peel it off. And it comes off like a piece of rubber. Just make sure you leave one window unclosed, you know, unsealed, because just in case you need it for any grass, you know, in an event of an emergency. Because it comes out, but it just doesn't come out that fast. Now, as far as the door is concerned, I would just use shrink film for that. So the shrink film, uh, basically, you put a two-sided adhesive tape around the door, and then you attach the film to that, and then you take a hair dryer and warm the film, and it shrinks and gets nice and taut and crystal clear. Okay. So the film would actually uh, prevent the door, the sliding glass door from opening? Correct. You would not be able to okay. use that door in the winter. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have to be able to use it, then you just have to use weather stripping but it's probably not going to be as effective. Okay, well, this has been very helpful. <laughs> I've just been afraid to put up anything that was going to destroy the window or the paint. <laughs> I know. You want to get that security <laughs> deposit back eventually, right? Definitely, or not pay more. <laughs> All right, Renee, good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. Olin's on the line with a Wayne's coding question. How can we help you today? Yes, uh, I was wanting to do some Wayne's coding in my living room, and... Uh, I'd seen some people do it with pallets, actually taking the, the pieces off and using the slats for the wains coating. And I know they do treat them with some chemicals and stuff. And as long as I run it through a planer and everything, would that pretty much treat it as long as it's filled up with the polyurethane and all that to keep it from being toxic from with the children and stuff. Well, I can't really answer that question because I'm not sure how they treat the pallets. And frankly, I've torn a lot of pallets apart in my day as, as things have been delivered and, and never really had a concern about treatment and never actually can recall smelling an odor from the treatment. Well, I I, I never would have thought about it, but I looked at some, st- at some pallet ideas online and I saw where some people had done wood floors with them and the lanes coating. And it just, it looked stunning, really. It was totally different looking from what you'd think a pallet would usually be, you know. Right. And so that's what gave me the idea. And I thought, well, that's, that would be a cheap idea to use. Yeah, and hey, it's an, it's, an, it's an upcycling too, Leslie. I mean, you're taking something and reusing it in a new and creative way. Better than sending it to ground to a, to a, to a dump. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't be personally too concerned about uh, treatment because I'm not sure that, it, that, that they are treated. But I would say that if you detect any odors and you're thinking that they're treated, then, you know, it, the virtue of the fact that you're going to seal them will probably minimize that. So I, for me, I don't think it would be a concern. Okay. Well, that sounds good, and I appreciate it, guys. All right, Olin, good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. Well, have you ever felt a chilly draft whoosh across you on a cold day? You might be thinking you got to check the windows or the doors for drafts, but it actually might be coming up from the floor below. We're going to share a solution in today's weatherization tip presented by DAP. 
That's right. Now, drafts that shoot up from the floor below your feet often happen because the rim joists, now that's the floor beams that line the exterior of the floor, just were never sealed properly. And you might also spot these kinds of drafts by running the back of your hand along the baseboard molding on exterior walls. These drafts can have a big impact on your comfort and your energy bills. Yep, and in fact, according to the Department of Energy, the potential energy savings from reducing drafts in a home may range from 10 to 20% per year. Now, the fix for the situation is pretty simple. The best way to do that is with spray foam insulation. Head on over to your basement or crawl space and pull back the insulation along the perimeter. Then apply the foam across the entire inside surface of the rim joist. This both insulates and seals out drafts in one application. And once you're done, you can restore the insulation and you'll be good to go. All right, now DAP makes touch and foam, which is the perfect system for a job like this. Touch and foam is a portable, self-contained, one-component polyurethane foam dispensing kit that's perfect for pros and serious DIYers who want to seal and insulate gaps in wall and floor cavities, as well as attics, basements, and crawl spaces. And as the foam is applied, it expands to fill the gaps where those drafts sneak through, and that's leaving you a lot more comfortable. And that's today's weatherization tip presented by DAP, makers of touch and foam professional wall and cavity foam. DAP has revolutionized spray foam application with the first one component broadcast spray foam. You'll find the DAP touch and foam system at Menards and select Home Depot stores. You can also learn more at DAP.com. That's DAP.com. La Honda in Texas is having some issues with insulation and wants to try out something new. Tell us about it. I just wondered if you had an opinion about traditional attic insulation versus the new Milo insulation. Hey, LaHonda. Yeah, the Milo insulation is an interesting product in that it's actually made from sorghum, which can be grown on a farm. So I think it's kind of a cool story. Whether or not that's um, enough to get me to switch away from old-fashioned fiberglass or mineral wool insulation or spray foam, I'd have to say probably not. I think it's going to have to be out in the market a heck of a long time for me to to make that switch. You know, and by the way, when it comes to fiberglass insulation, there's a new kind of insulation called next-gen fiberglass that Owens Corning makes, and it's a very sustainable product in its performance. And it also doesn't release those fibers in the air, which makes it a heck of a lot easier to install. So I think there are other probably better options, more tried-and-true options than going for a brand-new insulation product like that. Appreciate the fact that it's uh, something that's incredibly sustainable in terms of the way it is brought into this world, but um, I'm not ready to make that jump just yet. Jewel in Wyoming reached out to Team Money Pit and wants to know, how can you tell if you have too much snow load on your roof and what's the best way to remove it? Yeah, you know, if you've got a really, really heavy snow and it starts to build up on the roof, usually you get in trouble when it starts to melt, right? Leslie, I mean, the it, it starts to rain because the temperatures go up and it starts to get wet, and that's when it really gets heavy. So what you want to do is try to remove as much of that snow as possible. Now, there's a very safe way to do that from the from terra firma, essentially, and that is with something called a roof rake. Now, it looks like a garden rake, not the kind you use for leaves, but the kind you use to sort of rake the soil. It's about three feet wide, maybe two and a half to three feet wide, and it has a set of aluminum telescoping poles that connect to it. So the idea here is that you put together enough sections to get that roof rake up on your roof, and then you sort of walk backwards or pull it backwards to let snow falls off. If you can keep the snow from accumulating like that, that's going to make 
the weight a lot less, especially when it starts to warm up. And you'll also hopefully avoid ice dams too. So I think it's a good idea with heavy snowfall like that to make sure you have a roof rake and you go around, pull off as much of that as you can and avoid any potential harm that could happen. I had a friend once that uh, didn't do that to a barn that he had, and he had a pretty serious collapse, and it uh, seriously injured some of the farm animals. So we don't want that to happen to you, to animals, to anybody. So uh, give that a shot. You know, make the, Get the roof rake, keep it handy, and put it together and pull that snow down before it causes trouble. All right, now we've got one from Tyler in Oregon who writes, I have a very large tree between my house and my detached garage, so large that cutting it down does not seem like an option without damaging one of the structures. What is the best way to safely remove this tree? I feel like Tyler's imagining, like, using an axe at the bottom of the tree and shouting, Timber! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, listen, Tyler, first of all, and this is beyond the scope of a DIYer, let's just make that super clear, but the way that professional... Arborists will deal with this is they'll work from a crane and what they'll do is essentially disassemble the tree if this makes sense. So in other words, start it's of, kind of amazing. Yeah. Instead of taking it apart from the bottom and letting it fall, they'll start cutting off the top of the tree and they'll have ropes hung, hung onto those branches. So that once they're cut, they can be lowered down slowly and then taken to the chipper and so on. And they'll just sort of chip away at it and they'll chop away at it that way from the top down and never at any chance is there a risk of that falling down in the process. I saw them do this to my beautiful maple tree, which broke my heart, but it was really getting bad. And it started to uh, lean a little bit too much toward my power lines, and I had to have it removed. And that's how they did it. Took it apart one stick at a time, and it came down in less than an hour uh, with no harm done to the house whatsoever. I mean, it's really amazing watching them do this. I remember we had an old, large tree on the front, and, like, it was scary and terrifying and amazing but they are pros and they do it right this is the money pit home improvement show happy holidays everybody happy new year we hope that you guys have had a terrific year we thank you so much for spending these weekends with us and we hope that we've been helpful to you with tips and ideas and we're all looking forward to next year when we get to tackle a whole new set of home improvement and home decor projects we'll be here for you every step of the way. Until then, I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Remember, you can do it yourself. But you don't have to do it alone. 